in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. Three brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Hello, all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I am your host, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host, Brian Fry from Spokane, Washington. Brian, how are you doing, sir? Russell, I'm doing great, buddy. Awesome. And I'm excited. Do you know why I'm excited? I don't know why you're excited. I'm confused. I'm aloof. We're bringing back Bears Rebecca Fontaine from the Demolition Man episode. We're bringing her back here to go to the Forbidden Planet. So, Bears, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty great. I'm ready to, to fly to the 23rd century. Now, before we go there, we got to get to know you a little better. You were involved with Other Worlds Film Festival. Tell us a little bit about that. It is the number one science fiction film festival in North America, where we show films from all walks of otherworldly sights and wonders. Uh, we also play a little bit of horror, um, but mostly we uh, focus on time travel and robots and uh, aliens and all forms of uh, science fiction. And it's here in Austin, Texas in December. They debut new movies there, or is it a celebration of classics that we all love and know? We debut new movies, and then we do play some old movies, too. Usually we'll have a special guest. For example, uh, last year we had Nicholas Meyer, who came in uh, and talked about Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan. And we, also, we actually played Star Trek VI because he also directed that movie. So, And now, due to COVID, you can talk to him on the, the other side of a piece of glass now with your hand up against the glass dramatically while talking about Wrath of Khan. <laughs> That's right. Right, yeah. And talk about the needs of the few. Yes, um so uh but other worlds attack of the robots what's that all about well since i had such a good time on your podcast the last time we decided we would start our own podcast so it hasn't debuted officially yet because we had this idea that we would record all the episodes first and actually do a season so but we've been recording all quarantine and uh, every episode is going to be about a different robot movie. So we've talked about like the Stepford Wives and we've talked about the Terminator series and we've talked about Transformers, the animated film, Short Circuit, all these great films. And, the, and one of my very favorite movies of all time, The Black Hole. Mm. So uh, I can't wait to hear this. By the time this comes out, maybe you can search for it. If not, this is evergreen content. If you're listening to this way after it comes out, Definitely check out Other Worlds Attack of the Robots. Does the mime from Euro Trip count? <laughs> I I don't think so. I don't know. <laughs> so Bears, what is your favorite movie spacecraft? I like ones that are so gigantic that you don't even like remember that you're on a spaceship anymore. Like that was like I feel like when you're in like an aliens and they keep going to a new section of the spacecraft and you're like, why have I never seen this before? I feel like the future is full of spacecraft that are larger than cities. Fry, what about you? What's your favorite uh, spacecraft? 
it, no, it's funny you mentioned that because I'm exactly the opposite. I grew up, you know, just digging the small, agile craft, not like Starfighter X-Wing style, but like the Defiant on uh, Deep Space Nine or the White Star Fleet in Babylon 5. Just the really quick, ultra-powerful, punch-you-in-the-face-before-you-ever-knew-it-happened starships. I have a, I have so many, but I think I like the 1968... Uh... 2001 a space odyssey uh the space station the the circular ones it's so what are you doing, <laughs> do you have a favorite movie mistake bears i think that i love watching old films and finding the places where they didn't do a good job of removing the wires for hanging the spacecraft so you watch things fly around and you're actually just seeing like somebody's mobile you know and it's like really basically what we did as children and just flew little spacecrafts all around and with our hands it might as well be that so really old movies like x-men <laughs> i was like i was just re-watching battlestar galactica not the 2004 version but the original version and there are some pretty poorly executed science uh, you know sci-fi effects in that very good. How about you, Brian? I mean, I'm I'm a fan of the little things that you pick out, like the airplane behind uh, Russell Crowe and Gladiator. You know, just whenever you're just like, wait, was that? That was. Or another good one is uh, anytime an actor accidentally uses the co-actor or actress's actual name. Yeah, where, where did that happen? Come up, but I mean, you'll notice it every once in a while, especially in television. Uh, where they'll just drop. I know it happened to Tom Cruise one time. I want to say it was in Cocktail, maybe. But, uh, yeah, they were like, yeah, Tom. Oh, sloppy, <laughs> sloppy on that one. Yeah, yeah, uh, but that's fun. I I love props, like, or pieces that are effects that are on low budget. And I'm a huge Star Wars fan, and so if you get a copy of the original ones before they were remastered, you can see in the asteroid belt in the first one, the A New, a New Hope, that uh, there are potatoes flying around in the asteroid belt. <laughs> I just kind of assumed they were all potatoes. And that's just what they were using <laughs> I'd be disappointed time. if they weren't all potatoes. Aren't asteroids actually potatoes? I thought that that was actually what they were. Yeah, I thought they were all potatoes. Yeah. I don't know, but I want a different version of Armageddon now where a giant potato is headed to Earth and then they have to, like, you know, slice it up and make it into French fries so that, it, like, it, it, like, pours down French fries as it burns down through the atmosphere, cooking them and then feeding, like, uh, starving countries. Hmm. Think about it. So, Bears, what is your what science fiction movie would you want to remake? I often think about what movies I want to remake and shouldn't I be given the rights to remake things. And I actually already mentioned it. It's The Black Hole which is this great Disney movie from the 1980s that everybody's forgotten. And I feel like it's ripe to be remade because people, A, people haven't seen it, and B, the science in it is so bad. It is, like, literally the worst science ever. They have, like, it's like they never even read what a black hole is. So I think it would be interesting to do a version of that where you actually paid attention to something like that. Ah. And it's a, it's great characters in that. There's, there's a terrible, terrifying robot in it that just like basically slices and dices humans. So that's a good choice. How about flash Gordon? Uh, no, you can't improve upon that. The production design in that film is just amazing. Ming. <laughs> All right, so as mentioned, we're going to do The Forbidden Planet today. It comes out in 1957. 
and it comes in the box office at 14th that year. I've got conflicting what it grossed uh, numbers, so I'm going to avoid that sticking my foot in my mouth and just say it came on 14th on the year. It comes in behind the number 13 bus stop, or I should say bus stop, and it comes in ahead of The Wrong Man. The number one movie from 1957 was The Ten Commandments, and my goodness, that made a lot of money. IMDb makes uh, gives this Forbidden Planet a 7.6. The Rotten Tomatoes critics give it a 98%. So that's a stellar review. And the audience is, you know, it's a little behind. They give it an 85%. And it gets nominated for an Academy Award for Best Visual Effects. And the Library of Congress added this film to its registry for being culturally and historically and aesthetically significant. So, Bears, had you seen Forbidden Planet before? What was your background with it? So I came to this movie in my high school days when I was watching Rocky Horror Picture Show obsessively. And there's the opening song, Science Fiction Double Feature. And in that song, they name check about 10 different uh, sci-fi films. And I know I went down a list and tried to figure out what all of those were. And there's a very specific one with this one. It's Anne Francis stars in Forbidden Planet. So yeah, I first saw this in high school and I've loved it ever since. It's one of my favorite pre-blockbuster um, sci-fi films. And I'm thinking of blockbuster being like Star Wars started the new era of sci-fi. So pre-Star Wars, this is one of my favorite sci-fi films. Yeah. But you guys hadn't seen this before, right? That's right. This was Native. Yeah, this was my first time to it. Brian, You, uh, this was your first time as well, right? I mean, as far as plot and execution for the time and everything, I thought it was all really interesting. My biggest hang-up, and this is going to sound insane because it was probably outstanding visual effects at the time, but watching him shoot those guns, like every time it happened, I was just like, I can't get over like. It had sound sometimes, and sometimes it didn't have sound. And then they were just, like, going all out. And I was like, I, I, mm, I'm having a really tough time getting over this. And I usually don't have a problem suspending that piece for an older movie. But I just, I just couldn't get over it at the time. Okay, so you had some effects that pulled you out of it. And I'm, I know we're going to expand on that. I had... Um... Maybe I had mixed feelings on this one. I I was amazed at what they did for when it was because I kept thinking this must have been made later than it was, but it was really groundbreaking in a lot of ways. And I, I yes, they've been surpassed today. I actually had a high appreciation for the aesthetic of the movie. Uh, the, some of it does actually look really good even still. So it, the to on some points, like the blasters might not look like what you want today, but on the other hand, some of the sets that they have look amazing. On the other hand, I actually felt like there, I, the movie ended and wrapped up a little bit soon for me. So I wanted a little more for that. So um, I had mixed feelings, but I, I overall enjoyed it. Now, we're going to hop into the movie. But if you haven't seen The Forbidden Planet and you're spoiler adverse, you're going to want to go check that movie out and come back and enjoy this. After this message, we will be spoiling. We'll be going into depth on Forbidden Planet. So we'll be back after this. 
Do you love sci-fi, horror, and fantasy films? Then grab a badge for Otherworlds Film Festival, the country's premier sci-fi film festival. There will be Q&As, panels, parties, and mixers. Rub elbows with up-and-coming and established filmmakers, as well as like-minded filmgoers. Come celebrate our seventh year, December 3rd through 6th, at the Galaxy Highland in Austin, Texas. Badges are now for sale at otherworldsfilmfest.com. That's otherworldsfilmfest.com. All right, we're back, and we're going to get into The Forbidden Planet. So if you haven't seen it, we will be spoiling it. This is your final warning. Brian, do you want to give people a refresher for those who haven't seen The Forbidden Planet since 1957? It is the 23rd century, and the starship C-57D travels to Altair IV to find out what happened to an expedition to the planet 20 years earlier. They arrive to a frosty reception as... Dr. Morbius warns the ship not to land. But, once landed, the crew is met by Rudy the Robot, who takes Commander Adams, Lieutenants Jerry Farman, and Doc Ostro to Morbius's residence. Morbius then describes the grim fate of his expedition, claiming they were killed by a planetary force and their ship, the Bellerophon, was vaporized on liftoff. He, his now-deceased wife, and their daughter survived due to an immunity. Drama and frivolity steep around Adams, Foreman, and Morbius's daughter, Altera, as she insists she doesn't want to see Adams, then tries to seduce him. At this point, Doc and Adams find that Morbius has been studying the Krell, a highly advanced civilization that perished overnight 200,000 years ago. He shows the crew members the secret of his intellect and the extent of the Krell complex and informs them that humanity was not ready for such knowledge. Not long after, sabotage is found aboard their ship, and soon after that, a crew member is killed. They erect a force field to find their defenses are no match for an invisible force that they come to find out is actually part of Morbius's subconscious, and a byproduct of the machine used by Morbius to double his intellect. This was the cause of not only the Krell extinction, and the fate of the Bellerophon, but also the fate of Adam's crewmates. Morbius confronts the creature, but is fatally injured and dies. Adams, unknowingly, starts a chain reaction of self-destruction that then destroys the planet. But they make it back out. They escape. Yes, they the do. End. Yes. <laughs> that sounded very bleak at the end. <laughs> no, this is the 50s. Not everybody doesn't die. They just didn't do movies like that yet in, in America. Now, Bears... You do a podcast, or you've been talking a lot about robots on a podcast. Let's talk about Robbie right away. What do you think about Robbie the robot? Well, Robbie is a very important robot as far as science fiction goes. I mean, first of all, he is clearly the archetype for the robot in Lost in Space, which was the you know most successful science fiction television show of its era and it is also sort of the launching off point of robots like c-3po i mean robbie has a sense of humor and he has sort of a sarcastic taste and take on the world when they talk about oxygen he goes frankly i don't use it i don't i try to avoid it if i can uh causes rust i mean things that a robot wouldn't say i was giving myself an oil job Right. <laughs> he's also really interesting because he described, they try to say, they try to figure out if he's a, a boy robot or a girl robot. And he says that that question doesn't have any meaning to him, which I always found to be interesting because 
it establishes the genderless quality to robots, which I, you know, I think is fascinating. And, uh, and he also, you know, he serves a very interesting role in the house in that he's basically like a servant to the, to them and makes anything that they, they need, but he can see, he can do anything. Like he can make a fabulous gown or he can make steel plating for your, for your spaceship. So he's very multi, multi-purpose robot. Or gallons and gallons of booze. Exactly. <laughs> that was one of the weirdest part of this parts that I was like, you know, if he had come and brought them in like unmarked containers, like I get it, but it's like, here is all of the J and B scotch that I brought from the Bellerophon. <laughs> it's like, they're all labeled. And I was like, do they just have a distillery going? Is everybody a lush? Like what's going on here? He just has this stuff laying around. It's like Bender's uh, from Futurama's like torso. Like <laughs> yes. he opens it up, and whatever needs to happen happens inside that door. Yes. <laughs> it's all like very neatly stacked too. I was just like, man, that is. I couldn't do that if I tried. Like you could tell a robot stacked that boost. There's no way. <laughs> I also, I'll tell you this. I had a hard time doing a synopsis for this movie because every time I found myself like really going into too much detail and i was like all right reel it back in reel it back in well maybe that's too short all right reel it back in reel it back in no no, no, no that's too short so i uh i did struggle a little bit not putting enough and or too much detail so if there's a lot of sh- uh sharp stops and hurry ups that's probably why one of the things that uh is so cool about robbie is that they had to overcome a guy in the robot but it doesn't feel like it is i mean he walks around very slowly but on the other hand i don't feel like i'm just looking at a guy in a suit because of all the moving parts the glass dome that they have on him just looks really cool and there's a likable quality to him at the same time to your point like bears there's a personality to him and it's also crafted in such a way that uh you're you're not sure at first but you come to quickly like him well, you know, he was so popular that they used that same robot in a couple other movies, including a movie called The Invisible Boy, which came out like a year later. And I think he was in like a Twilight Zone episode and he popped up a bunch of different places. Is he always known as Robbie, like from there on out? Yes, he, that's his that's his name. In fact, Robbie cost so much money to make. He amounted he I think I read something like he amounted to seven percent of the entire budget of the film was just making the Robbie, the Robbie costume. It was the most expensive set prop or prop for a movie at that point in time. So they went all out on Robbie. I think it would have been fun if they had made this like a career change piece where Robbie shows up incrementally, you know, once every five or so years in various sci-fi until he topples down to like Dr. Who 10 years ago. And he's like, I've done a lot of things. I've seen a lot of things. <laughs> now I'm just uh, like, I demand, demand C three PO to hang out with Robbie and in a in a Star Wars episode at some point. Like just a just a continuity piece where he's still the same guy. They're really just tying it all in, and he's like, "I'm an explorer now. I'm done." He's been all over. He's seen the world. He's seen a lot of girls. <laughs> He shows up in like a Hawaiian shirt and he's just like. <laughs> now, speaking of girls, I think one of the things that, all, you know, 1950s movies can be a little bit problematic for this in some ways. But uh, what do you think about the role of the female character, the one female character in this movie bears of Altera? 
I mean, I think that she is in an interesting place because she has to be she has to be very innocent because she grew up on this planet like with only her father to tell her what's what. But you know, as soon as these boys land, she's she's into like all of them and all of their attention. So, you know, she plays innocent, but I think she I I think she, her hormones are are going and and she's ready to take advantage of the situation. I also think that she just looks she looks amazing in this film. You know, like like every every costume she's in is just um, unbelievably gorgeous. That's fair. That's fair. For a weird throwback that people may or may not get, it just reminds me of the Strong Bad Emails animation from way back when they did Teen Girl Squad, and it was like, I have a crush on every boy. (laughs) (laughs) It does make sense, and I I got the gist that they didn't come right out and tell us this, but Morbius told her daughter that all the Earthmen are ugly or something like that, because she was like, you three are exceptions. I'd like I'd like that uh, earlier on. I, I, I know this was a serious movie, but on the other hand, I wish they had played around with a little bit of the I fish out of water concept of that. Or I should say, I guess when the fish goes, walks out on land or whatever, when, when she meets the earthlings, I want I want to see more of that cultural difference there. And I thought there was some some gold to be mined that they didn't get to yet. They were, they were dancing a really fine line between. Um, wanting to make a serious science fiction film and like getting the comedy in there because you know this is this is MGM and MGM didn't make science fiction that they hadn't made a science fiction film since the 20s that was like universe that was over at Universal so when the um, head of the studio picked this film which at the time was called Fatal Planet uh, everybody was a little surprised that they were going to make this film and so I think they had to fill it with a lot more comedy than they. We're going to, but the reason why he wanted to make the film was because it it said some pretty serious things about you know the danger of technology, which is real interesting in the fifties. I mean, I don't know if you, if you want to get into that yet, but like you know the nineteen fifties are a time when technology was embraced and loved in America, and so if you're making a movie that's basically saying technology is what killed an entire race of people, and we should not tell, we should not you know give out technology. So, you know, that's, those are pretty dangerous thoughts. No, you're, you're right about that. That is a thing that I don't think you see. Correct me if I'm wrong. We start to see that happen in the 80s. More so. I, I think so. Yeah. The dystopian thing, the disillusionment of technology. You know, you're right. We're, we're in that era where science fiction and technology is our friend and robots are robots are still very optimistic. Everybody wanted a Robbie after this. Apparently George R. R. Martin got a Robbie. He has his he has his own Robbie. He would. <laughs> now he needs to finish a book. Robbie, write the book for him. <laughs> One of the things that I was wondering is like, are there any things in this that haven't aged well? Because like, I know my wife was watching this and she had a hard time going through it the first time with me. She was saying the the female character was, I guess, so objectified i guess and that she didn't necessarily you know she was told by her father what to do and you know she ends up just becoming a prize for the for the other men on the journey and even the captain who's just like hey you guys can't just take advantage of this poor girl she doesn't know what's coming at her but i'll be with her but i can (laughs) yeah Yeah, but i look i i get it and and at that time I, I think what Mary's probably point on that is, is at that time, that's exactly what they were thinking. But 
it's hardly not a plot point that's still used. And they may disguise it better, but it's not, you know, that's not something I would nitpick about this specifically. I mean, it's also a crew full entirely of white men, too. So, I mean, that's true. It's 1956. Like, that's 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 what they thought. You know? And at least in this case, they have a reason for why she's a little more objectified. I think there's a lot of kind of weird sort of dirty stuff going on with the father. <laughs> there's a there's a strong Freudian uh, element to this that, you know, he, he maybe wants to keep her there for himself. And she's got some daddy issues, which is why she goes for the captain and not the other the other guys. Huh. So, again. A little subversive. I think this film is way more subversive than people kind of gave it credit for. Yeah, you know, uh, they, 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 the guys got off the, the ship and was just like, you know, we haven't seen a woman in a long time. And I mean, I don't know if you know this, your daughter's hot. So, I mean, <laughs> sorry if our tongues roll out on the floor and we're drooling and our eyes pop out of our heads and we go, oh, yeah. And, the, and, the, and Morbius is just like, oh, well, well uh, sure, of course. Yeah, that makes total yeah, sense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, that was, he was like, uh, you have to understand, we haven't, like, I agree. Like, that was easily the creepiest part for me, where he's like, oh, allowances need to be made. And I was like, did he just agree to let them kind of do whatever? Because that's what it sounded like. Yeah, he did all, he did all but, uh, he did all but the, uh, Altera, could you bend over and pick up the TV remote for me? Yeah. <laughs> Slower. It w- slower. It wasn't even like something he had to think about. He's like, oh, well, yeah, that makes sense. Almost looking over at them going like, yeah, I did that. Yeah. Ugh. The uh, Krell is one of these really interesting pieces that they, they talk about in this. And I was so interested in this mysterious race that is now gone. I wish they had uh, dove more into that. What was, what was your reaction to that? This whole time that they're sitting on top of this forgotten civilization, Bears. I can't not think about the giant pyramid oxygen creation thing in, in Total Recall uh, that the Martians left behind when I think about the Krell. Like, to me, especially, there's a scene where they walk through the area where it's like the giant like computer that's left behind and you see them and it's just shot from above and it's almost like identical to the shot in Total Recall when they're going across the bridge. So yeah, I'm fascinated by that. But like, to me, it's, it's another one of these things of like, it's not satisfying your expectations, you know, like sci-fi movies back here, back in the fifties are like, here's a monster and here's a creepy alien. And, and this movie is like, yeah, there's aliens, but we're not going to show them to you. We don't know what they look like and we don't really know anything about them, but you know, it doesn't matter because what really matters is the fact that they died. And they've led to their own destruction in a day. And that's what, and it's a mystery. And I don't know. It's just, to me, that's fascinating that, that, you know, they took a chance like that. I kept wondering who the villain was and like, is Morbius a bad guy? Is he in cahoots with the Krill? Are we not like seeing them? Like, where is he leading them? Like what's going on here? And so my mind was going in 20 different directions at once because I just don't trust Morbius. I mean, the guy's got a goatee and he wears black. I mean, he, I mean, what's the what's the like and then also he's like you said like and then add on to that you, you don't really like him right away because it's just like if she wasn't my daughter i'd probably be dating her <laughs> there's a creep factor to him yeah i mean he, he's very oh, yeah, much doesn't 
want them even landing on the planet. So when they land, you know, then he, then he's like, oh yeah, come over for lunch. And then then you gotta leave though. Nothing to see. Move along. <laughs> but uh, on what you were talking about earlier about uh, you know kind of seeing aspects of this in Total Recall, like. I feel like there's a lot this movie contributed to science fiction going forward, whether you look at early civilizations that have helped boost our knowledge or like in science fiction, help boosting humanity's knowledge in terms of something like the expanse or, um, um, halo or, you know, there's that archetype is used a lot where we stumble across, this forgotten civilization's technology and use it to boost ourselves forward. But even just little hats off pieces, like uh, I've been watching the show devs. And one of the first things I thought when I watched forbidden planet is when they were going through, you know, the breadth of this Krell fortress or building, even pieces of that, when it shows the, you know, cubic, the geometry of the interior of it, reminded me of parts in in devs so i i feel like there's a lot that probably is a hats off to this movie as saying hey these were all good ideas we're going to mirror them in the future because you know they're they're ageless i, I was just going to say i i think the thing that ages is the best in this film is the production design i mean i, I the sets are just sparkling the colors are so amazing it's so rich i mean they, when they decide to film this in Eastman color and Cinescope, like it's just like they just milk that for everything that they could. It just looks gorgeous. I I've never seen this on the big screen. I would kill to see this on the big screen. And to see it at the time when you know nothing like this had been there before. That's that's a big thing that you really need to keep in mind. The wow factor that would have been there. Going back to the Krill, I, that was my favorite part of this movie. Probably that that poignant melancholy that's there for this advanced civilization that basically destroyed themselves and it was because the mystery of what was there and then they wrote a novelization wj stewart delivers a lot more information on the krill and their relationship to morbius and that was a lot of the stuff that i really wanted to dive into so i don't know if dealing with other worlds you encounter science fiction nerds who are like you know pushing their glasses up on their eyes being like i'd like to know more information i mean give me more details please but um that's me right now uh, i'd be like read the novelization read read the book written after the movie by someone not associated with the original project right uh, i i guess so but uh it was it was released right before it i is it not an association i i don't i don't know i mean i'm just assuming that i mean usually novelizations like it's it's just a way to make money off of I was going to say, I think they wanted to help promote the movie, so they put it out right before the movie came, so to drum up enthusiasm. So I'm assuming it had a stamp of approval by somebody. Probably. So anyway, unfortunately, Morbius just retains enough of his imperfect human nature that, you know, and his pride and his hubris is what actually brings everything down. I I like the fact that the doctor had to basically give his life up to even be able to realize that, where he's just like, Morbius is too close to it. He doesn't see what he's doing. Like, he figured it out, but then, like, he died, like, right away. Well, he's attacked by his own id, which is essentially another Freudian reference. I mean, and that's that's what it's, that's what the film is about, is, like, mankind's, uh, you know, inner drive for something and taking over. Yeah. There's this mysterious aspect of this, and for me, I didn't know who the villain was. What was your feeling of going through this? Uh, like, Brian, were you, like, thrilled? Were you, like, intrigued? 
like were you laughing at the campy nature of it by today's standards what was your kind of feeling as you were walking through it no i really enjoyed really the plot going through this uh there was you know there were a couple special effects that i got hung up on and that's not fair to the movie at all so i was into the plot i was bad i mean i feel like morbius always seemed like the bad guy to me like from square one like he didn't want them to land i wonder why they landed anyway hey friends you should really go home now i was like all right this this dude's the bad guy like everything that i know about film screams this guy's the bad guy and although he wasn't the bad guy he was the bad guy i mean he's so evil genius looking and whatnot like everything about this screamed he was a bad guy so i didn't guess i guess i never had that ambiguity uh ambiguity to to the character but um no i was super into the whole thing and yeah outside of a few hang-ups for the most part i was i was along for the ride and it was a fun ride yeah now bears what do you make about the poster the poster makes robbie look like He's a threatening, mean robot carrying an incapacitated or fainted Anne Francis on the cover. Uh, that doesn't happen in the movie. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that. Um, he's he's way more frightening with the red the red colors. I'm looking at the poster right now, but you know, they're just sort of making it something terrifying. I guess. I mean. I think that's actually another thing that makes it sort of subversive is you like come into this movie and you're like, oh, there's going to be this evil robot. And he shows up and he's pouring them coffee and like so and again, them sewing, dre- sewing dresses. I mean, I mean, come on. Yeah. I mean, he's just he's basically a slave. Yeah. Yeah. He's a he's a he's a really nice butler. Next time on 1950s punked, the robot's a bad guy. Ha <laughs> ha. No, he's not. There was a lot of threat, uh, though, even with Morbius in that early scene of just like point this gun at them and shoot. Eh? Eh? Oh, I mean, I think that's the first time we see like the kind of Asimov's, you know, laws of robotics on screen. Maybe I'd have to think about that. But 1956, you know, that idea of a robot can't harm a human. Yeah. And then bylaw number two being you, you have to obey humans. As long as you don't harm them. Mm-hmm. And then, then the third part being, uh, you know, have to preserve self-preservation as long as it doesn't conflict with the first two laws. So uh, uh, you're right. They, they seem to be aware of that. And I was, uh, it's interesting. You don't think you've seen that before in any of the early science fiction movies until here? It came out in the, the first, the, the laws were first in a short story from 1942. And, the, and the, they were in iRobot the collection and that was 1950 so it's pretty close to this I and mean, pretty close in time i don't i don't know if there were anything using that so i don't know it feels like the first um oh yeah wait here i just found a reference robbie is the first cinematic depiction of a robot with internal safeguards put in place in this fashion asimov was delighted with robbie and noted that Robbie appeared to be programmed to follow his three laws. So he pointed it out. I did I did keep hearing James Cromwell go, the laws are perfect. <laughs> <laughs> uh. we, we were talking about a lot of influences to Lost in Space, as well as to the Expanse and to other things, but number one thing that I came away with is Star Trek has a lot to say thank you for this movie. It's It's not as... Uh, progressive in terms of the social growth that you see in Star Trek, in terms of 
races and nationalities don't matter anymore. We're all just humans and we all get along and we're going to go explore space. They hadn't gotten that far, but the aesthetics beaming up to places, exploring the galaxy. I think Star Trek has a lot to say thank you. Even what they wear, like those gray uniforms are somewhat reminiscent of what the more colorful versions are for Star Trek that comes later. Even the belt, like the little, like I'm talking into my uh, belt or here's my little video and the little gadgets they have, the stunt, the, the, the blasters, very much Star Trek. Yeah, Roddenberry said that, that it was, the, I think the communicator is that, yeah, and phasers and even some of the language is exactly the same. He, he definitely said that it was part of his biggest influence. Yeah, it's if, if Star Trek were all white dudes, it would be this. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that Kirk Star Trek was all white dudes. No, no, they had a no, horror, they had a black woman, they had uh they had a, a Russian guy which back then that would have been like that, pretty wild. That doesn't count. Check off. They had an Asian guy. They had Sulu, yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. And Spock was a yeah. Vulcan. He's an alien. Like he's got that pointy doesn't, ears. Ah, that's that doesn't count. nationalities nationalities no i will give you i forgot about uhura i'll give you that one and sulu and sulu my mind went immediately to the spock mccoy kirk trio and i was like wait a minute there were others there were others there were leslie nielsen who i know primarily from airplane and from the naked gun a number of really hilarious spoof movies and here he is in his debut being really serious and it's 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 what's kind of funny to me is leslie nielsen's not that different uh serious as he is from when he's being funny (laughs) (laughs) well isn't he always a straight man in the naked gun and that's what's funny is like things are happening around him so yeah (laughs) yeah yeah he's pretty similar i mean he's not a great actor but he he's sort of an everyman i guess i don't know I didn't realize it was him initially. It actually took him doing quite a bit of talking before I realized who it was. I just really wish that he had come into the spaceship, popped his head in there momentarily and be like, good luck. I just want you to know we're both counting on you. And then close the door. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he used to do a lot more serious roles, I guess. He was in the Poseidon Adventure in the 70s. He was the captain of the ship that was sinking. Yeah, and he did a lot of TV. He's in Ben-Hur. Surely you can't be serious. <laughs> yeah, well, um, but, you know, he's not distracting in this film. I mean, like, it is hard to think of him as, as the, you know, naked gun or airplane. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, what do you think about this cast? It's a pretty small cast, really, when you get it into it. But how do you think they do as an, an ensemble, Fry? I liked it. I didn't see any, like, clear places where I would have recast somebody now granted I don't know a whole lot about the uh, you know landscape at the time or who may or may not have done a better job but uh, I didn't feel like any of the acting was deficient I'm just distracted by Anne France Anne Francis through this whole movie because she's just so gorgeous and every costume she's in is just unbelievable and I just want to watch her when she's on screen so you've got You've got uh, Walter Pigeon sort of chewing scenery as this like kind of um, goatee stroking evil guy, right? Yeah. And then all the, you know, all the uh, crewmen are sort of comic relief a little bit. And then Anne Francis is just gorgeous and whatever she's in, you know, I think it works. It's the 50s. I mean, it's what else do you want? You want 
strong things on screen. You want you. It was not a time of shadings. It was a time of like, this is the good guy. This is the bad guy. Yes, that's the thing. I'm glad you pointed that out. That's the thing I was trying to put my finger on. What is it from this time that doesn't seem? And you're right. There's no every. There's no that good and bad and everybody kind of thing. It's just these are the good guys. They're very serious. They're very. And then then you've got the clown with the cook. You know. You know he's the funny guy. And then you know, things are very in boxes. You're right. It's very straightforward. I think that uh, I think adding some more gray, not just in their uniform, but in their personality between each other, might have been an interesting thing for them to do. If you were going to make that today, I think you would do that. Yeah, absolutely. There is one moment that I think is really interesting for Anne Francis's role because, you know, she's got this tiger, right, that is like her pet. And there's a very different way that she interacts with that tiger after she's out all night with the captain. And to me, it's like, it's like, oh, I think she just had sex. Uh, (laughs) Loss of innocence. You know, she she does not feel as virginal anymore on the the next morning. But that's the only thing I noticed. I took that to mean Morbius was getting worried that they were there to take their daughter away and his fears that we later see because he's controlling the whole shebang in there, that he is basically getting concerned and that danger for her, it, it's lashing out towards them. Is that me just imposing my... No, maybe? no, absolutely not. I think that's a, yeah, I think that's true. I mean, everything that ha- everything is a creation of him, essentially, right? I mean... All the, all the creatures are. Yeah. Now, as you mentioned, MGM injected the humor in there. The writers didn't really want it to be... They wanted it to be handled seriously, but they also thought it was going to be a B-movie at first, too, at the same time. So they got turned down at Allied Artist, which was a B to make it a B-movie, and then they took it over to MGM, and unexpectedly, it turned into this big thing. And to your point, Bears... Can you explain what science fiction at the time was like and why this was so different? Well, I mean, most of them were matinee fairs. So they would be big, simple stories, usually focused on like, these are the evil Martians and they're coming, Uh, you know, or this is the giant, you know, like them is a perfect example, right? The giant ants attacking. And like, so they were kind of like big effects driven movies with very little to say and kind of poor quality. No budget too, right? No budget, right. An average budget back then for a sci-fi film would be about $400,000. You know, this movie was a $2 million budget. You know, so, you know, you've got a giant jump and it made its money back. You know, it didn't make a whole lot of money, but it did make its money back. And I think that that is a, it was a big thing that said, look, you can make a science fiction film, you can spend a little money on it and it can, be about something a little bit more serious. You know, this is a film about technology. This is a film about, you know, man on his own. I mean, it's the first time we're on another planet, you know, you know that the humans reach on their own. It's just, I don't know, there's just so much here. And it's a parallel to the Shakespeare's The Tempest, which we haven't mentioned yet either. So there's that serious component of it as well. Well, so there is, a, there is an argument to be said that that is why the... Um, head of MGM uh, approved the film is because he was a big Shakespeare fan and he he loved that it was The Tempest. And I'm not sure who caught that at the time. I mean, I think now looking back on it and reading about it, I think it's pretty clear. But but yeah, I don't know. 
Tempest, I mean, the Tempest, for people who don't know it, you know, it's on a, a it's on a abandoned island. You've got uh, Prospero, who basically is the Morbius character who lives on this island alone uh, with his, I think it's his daughter, mm-hmm. um, who's Miranda, right? And he controls the storms, right? Which is the same thing. It's like, it's like magic, right? So he has this robot which is Ariel, the the storm creature, and then and then also he he uses magic, or is it technology? I mean, th- there's a lot of like connections. Yeah, absolutely. It's not exactly one for one, so it's not like the Tempest in space. Uh, so it's not it's not like they didn't also creatively write it, like you said, and bring in these other interesting influences of what we were facing of technology and will we destroy ourselves? The destructive nature of that is mankind. So. It, it, it's good writing when you when you get into it for sure now fred wilcox again this is going the, the challenge of this is i'm not that versed with this era the guy wrote directed movies the late 30s through through 1960 and forbidden planet's the only movie that i've seen and wikipedia has almost no information on him or anything like that so what do you think about fred wilcox as a director my comments are going to be largely largely contained to this because i haven't seen his other great movie of lassie come home or the secret garden <laughs> i was gonna say he wrote lassie i mean he directed lassie so i mean I, clearly this is i think a jump off for him i mean secret garden is another kids movie that i think used to be on tv on sundays i mean i don't i, I don't know how he ended up on this this seems a very strange choice for him um I, but again i don't I, you know, I've, I think i've seen lassie sure we all know Lassie, whether we've seen it or not. I, I don't know if we actually have watched Lassie or Rin Tin Tin. They're all, I mean, they're all the same movie, right? Dog movies, Old Yeller. Oh, that one's different. No. <laughs> <laughs> Milo and Otis. As long as, as long as you don't mention Homeward Bound, we're cool. <sighs> I love Homeward Bound. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I, I like that one. I don't know why we're not mentioning that. No, I'm saying that all dog movie. You can say all dog movies are the same as long as you don't mention Homeward Bound because I love that one. Oh, okay, we all like it then. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> all all dogs go to heaven. That's a classic. So Fred Wilcox really stressed to everybody, and Francis was explaining that take this seriously. Leslie Nielsen was also in interviews saying like Fred Wilcox really went around stressing to everybody, don't let this turn into a campy schlock. Like you need to portray it seriously approach it seriously and so they they did have a very the the cast and the crew had a very business-like manner to them and the tech people or i should say the effects side were also everybody handled this like this is the big leagues this is mgm this is a big budget and um it's interesting that's just a big big shift from green men from outer space the production department at MGM had never, you know, because this is back in the day, people didn't work in other studios, right? You had a contract with MGM or you had a contract with Universal. Yes. So if you worked at MGM, you didn't get to make movies like this. So this is like the first time they say like, oh, hey, here's a sci-fi film. Why don't you make this other world? So I think the people, they just went crazy. They got really excited about, you know, making this film with this design and they, you know, they went over budget, but they ended up getting more money simply because you know the stuff they were doing was so cool yeah yeah and one of the some of the interesting camera stuff that we'll talk about here is uh i liked how the matte paintings on the background there's a charm to them i know that it some of that sometimes that'll pull modern viewers out of it but i think there's an aesthetic to it that to me resonates with the evolution 
of the performance that comes out of the stage world and into the and you're transitioning to movies. So while yes, I'm very aware that it's a static painting. On the other hand, they're very beautiful, and they had a cyclorama and a set, which was an enormous set. But they built a mock-up of roughly three quarters of the starship that was built. So it was 170 feet. It was surrounded by an enormous painted matte uh, painting that featured the desert landscape around there of Altair IV. And uh, it, the set was like a cyclorama. So it was like a cylinder, cylindrical kind of matte painting so that they could shoot from different angles and stuff like that. And I just want to say that, that that was a very charming thing that they did. And to me, I, I, I do really appreciate some of the old Hollywood methods and techniques for doing this stuff. Absolutely. Well, the guy Absolutely. who did the art direction of this film, the production design, uh, Cedric Gibbons, he won the Academy Award. I'm just looking this up 11 times. And then he had another like 25 nominations. It's just insane. So, you know, they were they knew what they were doing. You know, they used all their skills and then they were getting to apply it to something new. And I, I agree with you. The matte paintings are just they're gorgeous. And, you know, they use matte paintings in Star Wars, too. You know, it's a, it's a technique that works to create like a kind of an otherworldly feel. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the some of the sets that they had taken, like that garden that they were in, that's literally taken from another wonderful set that had a lot of great matte paintings and stuff in it. That's from The Wizard of Oz from 1939. The Altair's Garden was a reuse of the Munchkin Village. Wow. I did not know that. I did not either. So MGM had made some fantasy and this it's this surreal garden scene, which I was immediately drawn to. And it must have tapped into that little part of me as a kid. Where like, oh, this is an interesting, you know, like this, all, all of this is very interesting. And it's fake foliage. But in a way, it's hyped up on steroids to the point where you could believe this is another planet. Or if you stepped out of a house that went through a tornado into another world. So um, it, it's... It's off enough to be surreal and to really appreciate it. And I appreciated it again here. By the way, Cedric Gibbons is related uh, as a cousin to uh, Billy Gibbons of the rock band ZZ Top. I did not know that either. You're just wow. blowing me up right now. Take that, take that, <laughs> Kevin Bacon, in your six degrees of Kevin Bacon. And I said that he had been nominated for the Academy Award 25 times. I'm sorry, I was wrong. He's been nominated for the Academy Award 39 times. My goodness. Wow. Wow. Holy cow. And you think Meryl Streep gets nominated too many times. Wow, that's great. That is a record. Um, both both that and uh, winning the Oscar 11 times, both are records. So he's the Michael Phelps of Oscars. Yes. <laughs> And he did Wizard of Oz, so I guess it's his right to reuse that uh, garden if he wants to. That's right. Uh, Fry, what, do you have anything else on Wilcox, uh, Fred Wilcox? No, no, I uh, I wasn't as familiar, and and basically this whole this whole movie project was uh, a learning experience for me. Whenever we go this this deep into older movies, uh, I usually learn more than I know already. <laughs> No, you can bring that up. That's that's fine. Actually, go ahead, Fry. Uh, Fry, go ahead. Just uh, you. You can just say, "Are we ignoring this?" Go ahead. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I uh, yeah. I was just like, man, when I was uh, when I was looking through his movies, I was just like, oh, oh, that's okay. Fred Wilcox's last movie is named "I Passed for White," and it came out in 1960, which 
the cover yeah. is uh yeah, it's, it's, exactly, it it's kind of like what it sounds for like are you gonna read this poster yeah yeah it's just it was i i came across it and i was like oh man like when we talk about director is this is this gonna get brought up man like, uh, I, it, it's an ouch. It's definitely an ouch. It's horrible. Yeah, I've never heard of it. Um, I, I, IMDb says it's a young girl who meets and marries a man of her dreams, only she hasn't told him that she's half black, and he, has, and, he and his rich family and friends are white. Oh, no. Um, and, and, then, and, and the poster and the, says, yeah, I look white. Yeah. I married white. Now I must live with a secret that can destroy us both. Oh, yes. wow. <laughs> wait, wait. Yeah. Wow. The end of the plot. Lilla goes into premature labor and has a stillborn child, but cries out, is the baby black? After she awakens oh, from yeah. anesthesia. Oh, my God. Uh, yep. Oh, my God. That's the for last movie he directed, and perhaps it's good that he stopped there. We were we were picking on him for making the entire crew all white men, the whole movie all white men, but it gets worse. <laughs> oh, maybe he killed himself yeah. in shame. It, it, yeah, because <laughs> I was I, my first thought was, have I ever seen anything else he's done? And it's it's literally in his top four build movies, and I was like, ooh. That can't possibly be what I think. Yes, it is. Oh, my God. Oh, no. Oh, no. Yes, it is. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, now, uh, Fry, what, did you have any thoughts on the physical environment that they had made here? I I mean, they used a lot of the techniques in this movies than this movie that they use in older movies. So you're going to see some stuff where you're like, well, that doesn't, you know, pass muster on, on anything other than an old movie. But... I agree that it, I think the colors are vibrant. I think it fits in with what they're going for. I think this is a visually striking movie if you can take your brain and put it in an earlier time. Yeah, yeah. And the I want to say the layer of the Krell is amazing. And even in today's mm-hmm. times, it's, it's fiercely modern. The 50s was a really wonderful time for architecture and design. And that's that's on full display. Less so with the house. The house is pretty cool, but it's a little bit funky. Fifties, like it's it's cool, but the layer underground and the city and the engine that they had made to the power of this machine, that was so cool. I will say one of my first thoughts though, when they showed the layer, I just expected Doctor No to turn around. <laughs> no, Leslie Nielsen, I expect you to die. I, I, you know, the, the architecture of the building reminds me of like that was like, I think it was called Googie style and like the airport and Angeles looks like that. Yes. So I think that was a big part of the fifties. You know, it's interesting that they just jumped on that as like, okay, well, obviously in the future, it's going to look exactly like the most modern things we have right now. So Eh, you still, you, you still get a lot of that though. You'll get like super organic architecture now or you'll get like deconstructivist architecture taken and you know maybe they'll amp it up on steroids a little bit the best thing you can do is to like make it defy gravity like that's you know but uh it's always hard to predict what the future will bring well uh yeah like i was saying with with dr no like that i feel like this is another situation where it's not even a science fiction movie you're looking at with uh you know uh his um 
Joseph Wiseman's character, uh, his lair is, I feel like, has a lot of striking resemblance to this and could have borrowed pieces of that ultra uh, modern technical, like, I'm, I'm a step above you in intellect uh, scientifically. Hmm. That's a great point as well. Although it's not his, you know, it's not his, right? He just found it. He's still trying to figure it out. So that's, you know, he... Well, he built Robbie. I'm assuming he would have had the orchestrated the design of his house too, right? Well, part of it, yeah. But I think when he gets into that back area, it's stuff that he is still trying to figure out from the crowd. He's spent 20 years just trying to learn their language. Oh, you're right. You're right. I meant the house up, the house up above. That's him and his space colony. And that's what they did. But then you're right. Yeah. Everything underground, I think the Krell did. As far as the special effects go, there actually wasn't a lot of brand new technology. It had all been done before. But what they were doing here was creative, and they were using it in ways that we hadn't really seen a lot before. So what are some of your favorite visual effects that you see in this movie? Why don't you take this one first, Fry? Oh, well, clearly, clearly the lasers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Come on, yeah, come on! It's 1956. I mean, like, have you tried to watch Flash Gordon from the 30s? <laughs> okay, okay. Um, we know you don't like the lasers. What did you like? I, I would say that probably the 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 Krell uh, elevator slash whatever that whatever the shot that they continuously use when they're walking across the platform. Like, I thought that was cool. That's one of the things that resonated with seeing other things that they've borrowed from you know like i could see that being a direct correspondent to other newer things as a throwback to say hey i remember when i saw forbidden planet so i don't think they did a terrible job uh with the spaceship either um it's just you know we grew up in a generation used to seeing stuff like mystery science theater mock stuff like this and for the time you know it's a remarkably good job I mean, I, I thought the plastic educator where he was tapping and you see that projection of Alta and the projection, that is straight up like Princess Leia coming out of R2-D2 later to me. So again, mm-hmm. just so influential in that. And it looks really cool to see that those two layers of film that are used together there. Mm-hmm. Bears, were there any visual effects that you were particularly pleased with? Well, I enjoyed the car- the cartoon monster. I know, I know that there's a... that that might not have aged as well, but I thought that the design of it was really cool. If you look really closely, he sort of has a goatee. So I think they're sort of saying, it kind of ties into it being Morbius as id. And uh, I was looking at, you know, I was reading about it a little bit and apparently the animator was uh, alone to them from Disney. Joshua Mador was his name, yeah. I need you guys to do me a favor. So both of you and all of our listeners, I want you to go online, look up the old X-Men cartoon from the 90s, and type in Spirit Drinker. I swear it's the same monster. X-Men Spirit Drinker? Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is the exact same. Oh, that, that is it. That, that, is, that is blatantly it. And good callback for you, Fry. I mean, that's great. When I first saw it, like, actually on screen for Forbidden Planet, I was like, oh, my God, that's, like, because, like, I'm a huge X-Men nerd. But um, I was like, that is the spirit drinker from the X-Men cartoon. I'm not 100% clear on this. I, I heard it described, and even then I'm still having a hard time fully understanding it. But they they animated. Josh Mader from Disney was lent to 
to, to make these animations for the monster. And he did make these illustrations through the light of the saucer also, like in the blasters, all of that, or the Robbie overthinking himself and like sweating when he was told to shoot somebody. All of these things are animated into the movie and their ways of doing things that they wouldn't have been able to do through just standard light. And apparently they shot drawings in negative. And when they do that in film, it comes off with a reddish tint. And so that they could draw these things, I guess, in negative, and then I guess overlap the films to do that. That's, I'm, I'm not sure that they're overlapping the film or if they're literally drawing on the film itself. And I, Bears, can you help me clear up on that at all? Because to bring animation into the real there, that looks cheesy, as Brian said to many now, but that's kind of a creative move to do at the time. Yeah, I don't know how they I did it. I don't, I mean, what you just described sounds right to me, but I don't, I don't know enough about the t techniques at the time. Yeah, I only heard it described. I did not, it wasn't a behind the scenes footage. They didn't have DVD bonuses back then. So I was curious about that, so. They didn't have DVDs back then. They did not. It's true. What did you think about the soundtrack? Yeah, we should talk about the score because this is a pretty influential score in that it is the first film where the entire score is done with electronic music. You know, there there, there were theremins in earlier films and there's no theremins in this film. I mean, theremins are like connected to sci-fi from the 50s. But in this case, it's all electronic music. And it's just a bunch of bleeps and bloops, um, but it, it is synced with the film, I think, pretty interestingly. And it definitely puts us in another world. Yeah, it's and it's eerie. Again, just like you're not sure, what is Morbius really up to here? Something's not right. Why is nobody around anymore? This music so reinforces that for me. It, it goes into that subliminal, dark, dreamlike feeling and it really emphasizes that this planet is foreign. It's forbidden. <laughs> well, the, the one thing that I will say on this is we have grown so accustomed to hearing music. And it actually, you know, if you watch enough, it gives you key pieces of the, the film at that point. So you're just like, oh, okay, the bad guy's about to show up or something like that. This makes me really fascinated to wonder what it would be like to hear something like this for the first time and not know that's what's going to happen. Yeah. Right. Now, this is made by a husband-wife duo, Bibi and Louis Barron. They took eight months to make the sound effects for this movie, and the studio loved it so much, they said, do the whole soundtrack, which this took very, very long time for them. It was very labor-intensive. They loved what they were doing, but they were doing some very experimental stuff. If you see the rooms, the pictures, of which is filled with machines, vacuums, light bulbs, buzzing things, just it was a it was a sound lab to the max. And again, this is something that movies would go on to do more and more and more of with sound people, but to get this big of a jump from where they had been before to now, this is actually one of the more groundbreaking parts of this movie. Like I mentioned a lot of the technology was being reused in creative ways, but this is this is breakthrough stuff. And interestingly, because they weren't part of the musicians union and weren't part of the sound effects union, uh, they were both cheaper than hiring Hollywood people and also couldn't be nominated for Oscars for their work in either the sound effects department or the or the score department, which is a shame. Yeah, yeah. Scabs. 
Yeah. <laughs> they were scabs. They were essentially scabs. Apparently the, the producer saw them like playing at a nightclub, and I'm wondering what kind of nightclub had people playing music like this and hired them on the spot. You know, they were just, just randomly, you know, their life was made by this, um, you know, strange meeting. But, I'd like to think yeah. they opened up for the Moss Eisley Cantina Band. <laughs> What do you imagine the sound of lasers being? Pew, 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 pew. <laughs> but really, nobody had thought about that before. So, uh, and in fairness, when you zap a tiger, it just kind of is like, pop. Whew. <laughs> <laughs> um, in reality, if you blasted a tiger jumping at you, wouldn't it just like blast out like in, like flesh, like cubes and like blood all over you, like coming at you? Are you Not saying if you shot it with a laser? I mean, yeah, it would explode. I mean, we don't have a laser that actually does that. Not if it's a black hole laser. I like to think <laughs> that the future lasers accomplish exploding animals not not disappearing dissolving animals. I just feel like yes, it's very clean to make it dissolve, but where does it go? Where does it go? <laughs> it landed on a stage in Vegas and Siegfried and Roy are like, ta-da! <laughs> 30 years later, yeah. Forbidden planet. Because while it follows the laws of robotics, it has to follow the laws of physics and matter cannot be destroyed. <laughs> um, hey, if Captain America's shield doesn't follow physics, then nothing does. Well, that's vibranium. <laughs> that was explained. <laughs> All right. Uh, Good nerd stuff. Good nerd stuff here. But John Carpenter praised the soundtrack too while we're on this. It's just saying this is truly experimental. One of the most original sounds like it. And not only did this movie just get me nostalgically to fall in love with movies to make him want to become a director, but also this was influential for him as a sound creator. And he does quite a job of that himself with the Halloween movies later. And so this is influential, not in genre, but this is influential out of genre as well. Yeah. Do you guys have anything else that you want to talk about? Any catch-alls before you head into the superlatives? I mean, I, I mean, I still want to talk about the costumes. You know, designed by Helen Rose. You know, designed by Helen Rose. (laughs) I mean, I, I just can't. I just couldn't get enough of everything Anne Francis wears in this. I just feel like, hey, that was done by Robbie. That was done by Robbie. Don't take that away from him. Robots are people too, sort of. (laughs) Um. So much attention was paid to her because she's the only one who like stands out in this kind of planet full of people in gray costumes and these like sort of strange otherworldly mountains in the background. She just she just sparkles. And uh, and the, these costumes that they brought in one person specifically to do her costumes and everybody else was done by somebody else. You know, the Helen Ro- Helen Rose, who had a, a two uh, Academy Awards uh, had just won an Academy Award for her last film prior to this. Uh, they brought her in to do all the costumes for Anne Francis. Now, her miniskirt, which was a bit racy for the time, got the movie banned in Spain. Which is funny, because when I think of Spain, I actually think of people wearing miniskirts. So. Apparently, they didn't want to show them on the screen then. But uh, when we first meet Altera, she's got a white on, very short white dress, very striking. But then later... Not not much longer. She's wearing black, and I I wondered like what are do you feel like the wardrobe is reflecting her and her 
direction towards the captain or are we am i making too much of it because i mean she goes from we meet her in white maybe being innocent and then she's yeah, wearing like a i think gold. that's absolutely true yeah. yeah and then like she's wearing gold like like kind of maybe being like a peacock sort of and peacocks are males uh are the, the iridescent ones but nevertheless it's functioning in the same way where she's like this alluring you know i'm drawing you in with this sequins gold dress and then later i'm a little fuzzy on the black just loss of innocence at that point i mean a little more severe at that point i think that is actually isn't that what she's wearing after she spent the night out i mean i think it's i think it's as obvious as that right i, mean, I think it's after she spent a lot of time with okay captain i think they did it you know that's that's my opinion. Now, one thing I I, I got to really, I, I kind of laugh at is the wardrobe department made sure to put clothes on her for her nude scene in the pool. Like when he's like, oh, you have no, you have nothing on. And the camera clearly shows that she's wearing like, like a swim dress kind of, but not even like a flesh toned bathing suit of, uh, I, I thought that was one of those really funny things. And she gets out, she's like, I have no clothes on. I was like, you have a lot of clothes on, but who's counting <laughs> it's clingy though i don't know maybe he's just reacting to that it's showy yeah i, I don't know the uh the nude swimsuit i just uh or it wasn't even nude it was just like a i don't know it uh I, I, that cracked me up a little bit of i thought that she was just gonna say i'm wearing a swimsuit of that's like sheer or something like that and then she's like no i'm wearing nothing i'm like oh, that's a lie but <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's enough talking about her costumes because, you know, <laughs> I, it's just an excuse for me to pull up pictures of her and look at them on my on my computer as I, as we're talking. I mean, she's just so gorgeous. Like she's striking. I, I don't know why she, why she wasn't a bigger star, but she is the first woman to star in a television show in which she plays a character whose name is the title of the show. I think that's kind of interesting, like like that that she's the character and that's the name of the show. That's she's the first woman for that. I do think it's worth mentioning that somebody had to be in Robbie and the stuntman who was inside of Robbie apparently had five martinis at lunch and fell or nearly fell over and caused damage to Robbie. <laughs> so he was then fired uh, because Robbie's oh. super expensive. So having a little drinky winky before you're being Robbie is not a good idea because he's really expensive. I'm trying to wrap my my head around five martinis in a lunchtime sitting. It's the fifties. <laughs> I'm sure like they're just smoking and drinking constantly. Dude, I I get it, but man, I would be flo- like all a martini is is liquor, just and a little bit of olive juice. Lord, may have an olive in it. <laughs> oh, I'm assuming they're dirty martinis. You're right. Yeah, I don't know. Good good question. I don't know. Uh, anyway difficult to find somebody who fit in that costume i mean i would assume that that was right. pretty specific yeah i think they had to get the michelin man and when that didn't work out <laughs> oh, sorry um are you guys ready for some movie superlatives good sure bears why don't you start us off mvp i do my mvp for this has got to be the production designer cedric giddens and the just the, the way that everything looked uh, this movie isn't anything unless you're looking at you know except the way it looks Every, that's the thing that makes this movie. That's a really great choice there. I'm going to go, wow, I might change my answer now. Uh, but uh, Brian, what about you? I went with uh, Walter P- Pigeon as Morbius. I feel like his 
creepy nature kind of added the eeriness to this plus his kind of like smug superiority gave the the science part of the science fiction its punch i had walter pigeon as well but I, i'm thinking cedric gibbons might be i'm flip-flopping on the scene because you're right the aesthetic of this movie and the tone of it is what will keep it people coming back to it it's it's got a place in history and that's what's keeping it there but pigeon is awesome and you're right like he's on another level he's on another level of acting from everybody else in this movie (laughs) no come to my side i'm the one who's right (laughs) now best supporting actor bears Uh, i mean and francis great choice yep is she, is she uh, i mean i don't know if you can consider supporting but she's great she's great i mean although the cook is really funny now uh <laughs> ryan how about you who's your best supporting i also went with ann it's she was very clearly the i i, I almost say she's the central part of this it's just she's so integral to each part of the plot here that uh yeah i don't know i went with her yeah i'm gonna remember morbius i'm gonna remember and Francis in this one. I admittedly, I'm just going to remember the fact that Leslie Nielsen was in it, but I can't say that it was his performance. It was just, you know, an actor I know being in it so young. So you're right. Those are the two standouts. And, uh, but I'm going to go off the beaten track and say, Robbie, the robot is my best supporting actor. Love it. Not the five martinis, Robbie though. I like, I like, <laughs> I like sober Robbie. No, Robbie, Robbie was recently sold. The original Robbie was recently sold at an auction for $5,375,000. Yeah, definitely did not lo- fall down in that uh, even still now. That that holds truer now than it did then. Jeez. Yeah, but the, RO, the ROI on that's got to be amazing. You just have to be like, Robbie, make me a diamond and emerald dress. <laughs> that's the <laughs> point. Totally, totally. All right, uh, Bears, who is your hidden gem? Or what is your hidden gem? Or who? The cavernous Krell lair, you know, because you're not expecting it. They take you down into it, and it comes about two-thirds of the way through the film, and you're like, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, that was a great turn. Brian, what's what's your hidden gem? Uh, I like Doc Stevens. He just added a... You know, that complimentary piece to Adams that helps him figure out what's going on. And I just, uh, he also really looks like somebody else that I can't put my finger on. I've actually spent a while trying to figure out who he reminds me of. Yeah, I thought that too. But uh, it was, yeah, seriously driving me nuts. And uh, I thought he looked like Kevin Spacey. I, I can't put my finger on it. I may, Maybe in like three episodes from now and like two months, I'll be like, that that guy but uh yeah doc is my hidden gem all right my hidden gem is marvin miller who did the voice work for robbie and if you watch the trailer he's also narrating the trailer so Uh, i love that recast somebody if you had to recast somebody and put somebody else in their place bears i'm definitely recasting leslie nielsen because he's completely forgettable in this movie you know and uh... surely you can't be serious I just, I mean, I just don't think he brings anything to the role. I, I, you know, I can't off the top of my head. I can't think of who I would put in, but you know, maybe, you know, who's the actor in the time machine. I'm thinking even like the 1960s, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, It's a little bit. Yeah. But that's a good, yeah, sure. In an older movie, we have to give you some leeway. Well, let me ask you this. 
can you move pieces around? Like, were you impressed by the acting or do you think any of the rest of the crew added something to it to where you think that uh, maybe if they had just swapped roles, it would have been more fitting? Like, are you suggesting maybe the doctor be upgraded to the captain? Yeah, maybe. That could have been more interesting. Like, what if uh, what if Leslie Nielsen played Farman? Rod Taylor, by the way, is the uh, lead actor of The Time Machine. So, yeah. And he's in The Birds. So you may know now, Brian, if you had to recast somebody, who would it be? I do not have a firm enough grasp of, you know, who was available at the time. You know, I think back to actors that I've always really liked, like uh, Saruman. Christopher Lee. Yeah, yeah, Christopher Lee. Like, could you see him as Morbius? I think yeah, that'd be yeah totally. I could. Yeah. So, I mean, I hate reusing, like, people who have been relevant for that long, knowing that they would have been you know, around the business back then, but he would have been available back then. But I do feel like I have such a small pool of people like that, that I pick from that anytime we do one of these movies, I'm like, Oh, that'd be cool. There are fewer movies and there are fewer actors in fairness to you. So it is a smaller pool by nature. So don't feel that bad. Cause I mean, I went with Montgomery Clift in for Jack Kelly. So Lieutenant Fairman's out and uh, Montgomery Clift is in, and you would know him from from here to eternity. Yes, yes, that'd be good. He'd also be great in Leslie Nielsen's role. Yeah, he's going to be more charming than the guy who's there, and he's also going to be a tad more serious. And they wanted serious on this, so um, that's I. Let's go there. Best shot of the movie, bears. It's got to be that shot in the in the in the lair from above where you see the. The giant, all the machines, the 9,200 Transformers or whatever he says. The one that I said reminds me of Total Recall. It's just so, I mean, it's so striking. It is. It is. Uh, that's mine as well. I mean, I am I, I sometimes try and find something just to be different, but that's, I mean, if I think of this movie, I will think of that amazing layer. So what about you, Brian? You know, one that took me off guard is when she's talking about her friends and then they shoot to this very non-extraterrestrial planet shot with the animals coming out of the woods. Mm-hmm. And that really just, it, it took me off guard and I was like, oh, well, that's a thing. So uh, I think just the the addition of that to show that he's also put an ecosystem into this planet that mirrors Earth was striking to me mm-hmm. yeah yeah that was unexpected the best scene of the movie bears uh, i think of when they meet robbie for the first time because that's the first time when we see something like really different and he and robbie's so funny and it's like this is not what i was expecting this robot to be like that's where it takes us and i think really places us in this world now, Brian, what's your best scene? Uh, I completely agree with that. Just because at first when they were like, what's that? And you see the dust kicking up and, and stuff like that. I I was thinking, oh man, is this going to be like a tremor? Like <laughs> I actually thought it was like something sinister coming at them right away. And then it was Robbie and I was like, yay, fun robot. Actually, the dust kicking up is, I mean, that's a perfect reference to the Tempest because Robbie represents the aerial character, which is like the wind, right? So the, the, the dust kicking up is a very specific Tempest reference. Mm, nice, nice catch there. Uh, I'm going to be stuck on one note on this one, but I cannot get over the discovery of the Krell 
underground when Morbius uh, puts you in that transport and it then shuttles you out to that amazing scene with the miniature people and just great model work. It's so good. So uh, I, I'm, I'm visually stunned and I'm also just captivated by the discovery of that. So I need a Krell movie spinoff. I really do. So um, Bears, what is your change one thing? I think you're right when you said that the movie ends really quickly. I feel like, you know, they set all this stuff up and then as they figure out what's causing the problem and then they get out of there pretty quickly and then they blow up the planet. And to me, I think you're right. I feel like there wanted, there needs to be one more obstacle to overcome, I think. Uh, and I think that that obstacle should be overcome through some knowledge that Anne Francis's character has, you know, from living on this planet so that she has some agency, which she just isn't given in the film. So that's my, that's my thing. Like I want, I want her to have the solution because she's lived on this planet and I feel like they wasted that as an opportunity. No, I like that. No, you're right. Because they, because they are de-emphasizing the female role in a fifties movie like you're right to to give her the time that she deserves to show her that this is her whole world this is everything that she's known and that she has to and she trusts her dad and then these outsiders come in and she hates them she hates them and then she has to come to like them only to then find out that her dad is not to be trusted and to actually side with these people who are outsiders that's actually a big character arc and they don't fully do it like she's kind of eye candy in this movie you're right. I feel like that's where there's some, some more emotional intensity to be gained. Yeah. I, I was thinking that more Krell underground discovery and just trying to find out more of what happened. Uh, the doctor and the, and Hey, like did, trying to deduce and getting more breadcrumbs. They blow it wide open pretty fast. And I wish that there had been some more sleuthing. Yeah. I gotcha. But uh, Brian, what about you? One change one thing. Uh, no, I really like that idea. Uh, of having her, you know, have some really integral piece of information at the end. I think that would have been excellent. Uh, I hadn't thought of that and, and completely agree. And I would say the other thing, and this is, this is being nitpicky and probably a little petty when it comes to special effects, but we had talked about how they did the special effect of the speeder coming up and, you know, the stuff blowing up. They used a very similar piece to show the ship landing. And I thought that was weird borderline bad research because if something were landing it'd be blowing out not up and for some reason that just bothered the heck out of me wow okay i thought you were gonna attack all the lasers i do have a question though no I, i'm done i'm done attacking the lasers we'll we'll, we'll, leave, we'll let the lasers be would you be okay if all the lasers that were in there were in there but the red ones that define the outline of the monster were downplayed a lot so it was still an invisible threat like it was like dispersing like the lasers were hitting something but you don't see what it is would that go down better for you it was really just the not synced up soundless quality to some of the lasers that that bothered me okay like it almost it's it almost seemed like a void like they forgot to add something in there and maybe that's from growing up with you know the the very meticulous sound effects they use for like lasers and star Wars and stuff. But I just thought it, it just kind of felt like the lasers fell flat. Okay. Best quote of the movie bears. Uh, it's like a simple exchange. She says, uh, Robbie, I must have a new dress right away. And Robbie just says again. <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, it's so like definitive, like 1950s, like just belittle the woman to like that's all she cares about is dresses. It's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> what about you, uh, Brian? What's your best quote? You know, nothing really struck me in this one. I didn't have anything that I earmarked as uh, like, wow, that's potent. Probably as there, and this is paraphrasing, because like I said, I didn't really write anything down because nothing really struck me as like, this needs to be remembered. But uh, probably as they go away and they're they're kind of commiserating that there's some things that humanity uh, isn't ready for. Okay. The profound finish. Good call. I'm going to go a completely different other direction, more in line with what Bears was saying. And uh, after the cook gives the whiskey to be duplicated and is upset that it's being taken. And then he's, and then he says, uh, would 60 gallons be sufficient? <laughs> uh, the other really great Robbie moment is, i uh, sorry, miss. I was giving myself an oil job. <laughs> right. Right. Or, or the cook, the cook had a couple good, like, geez, mister, you don't judge. <laughs> Cracking grand, like, Another one of them new worlds. No beer, no women, no pool partners, nothing. Nothing to do but throw rocks at tin cans. And we have to bring our own tin cans. That's a good one. That's a good one. <laughs> now, Bears, do you want to give one more reminder for where people can find out more about Other Worlds Austin and your effort? Yeah, uh, come to check us out at otherworldsfilmfest.com. And uh, our festival will be first week of December. So check it out. This is the uh, climax of the show where everybody will give a five-star rating with half-star intervals. Bears, why don't you lead us off? What would you rate The Forbidden Planet? I give it four stars. Great. The thing that holds it back is, is you know, that Anne Francis isn't given enough to do. And then I think that, that ending, you know, but the production design, like, keeps pulling it the other way. So it's like, I, I'm, I'm conflicted. If I saw this movie in the 50s, it would clearly be a five-star film. So I, I'm only looking at it from modern lens that I'm kind of kind of holding it back for that. All right, Brian, what are you rating this movie on a five-star scale? I think it's very fair to say that, you know, had, had I viewed this, you know, big screen back in the 50s, I, I agree with that, that feeling on it, but I'm going to give it a three- uh, just because it's one of those things that I'm I'm glad I saw it and I checked it off the list, but I'll probably just leave it there. Can't get you to go three and a half, huh? Not going to go those uh, decimal points, man. He fights it. fighting it. He fights it. Fighting it. All right. I'm going to go with Bears, and I'm going to give this a four. There are parts of this movie that have not endured as well, uh, and but there's parts of it that are so absolutely influential and they're mind-blowing for other things. You really do need to put yourself back into the 1950 seats and just have a really appreciation for how cool this movie is. And I would love to see this remade today. I don't often say that. I think this is an important movie and it has its place in time. But if you got the right director, if you got the right crew, I think that this could be really cool to attempt again. I'd agree with that. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to see, I mean, I feel like somebody like Spielberg just because it's, it's got such a cinematic richness to it. Like, I feel like he could really give it a refresher, you know, and do something fun with it. Yeah. Now, Brian, you want to help me pick a movie for next time? All right. We're going to 
the great city of New Orleans, and we're going to give you option number one here, Hard Target from 1993. A woman hires a drifter as her guide through New Orleans in her search for her father who has gone missing. They discover a deadly game of cat and mouse behind his disappearance in the process. Option two, Runaway Jury from 2003. A juror on the inside and someone on the outside manipulate a court trial involving a major gun manufacturer. And option three, French Quarter from 1978. Not that one. Yeah, chronicles the life of a young <laughs> New Orleans prostitute and her coworkers. Uh, I think I, I don't think we've done a Grisham yet, so let's uh, let's go with Runaway uh, Jury. Yeah, it'll be our first court-related movie. I mean, you got Hoffman, you got Cusack, you got Hackman. That'll be fun. Rachel That's Weiss. one of the best best Grisham movies, I think. That's I just watched that on a plane the other day. It was on the list of say, movies you could watch. That and uh, I really enjoyed Pelican Brief. So you can watch it on a plane on the way there. You can listen to the podcast on the way back. It's perfect. Perfect. <laughs> Bears, thank you so much for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. Next time you guys want to do another old movie that you haven't seen, I'll pick something good for you too. All right. And Brian, thank you as always, man. Hey, no problem, man. Always a pleasure. And thank you all the Lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you, so subscribe, rate, and review to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get your show. And we want to know what you think, because that helps us make the show better, and it helps others find the show, so it's the number one thing you can do. And it's free and takes uh, no effort on your part, pretty much, so please do that. Give us a like on Facebook. Follow us on, on Twitter at at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. All one word. So, And producing the podcast is fun but not free, so we invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash Retro Movie Roundtable. All one word there as well. So any contribution is appreciated. We'll make that go towards the show and making it better for you. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Brian? I know I've made some very poor decisions recently, but I can give you my complete assurance that my work will be back to normal. I've still got the greatest enthusiasm and confidence for the mission, and I want to help.